Have you ever uh, had high hopes? High hopes about something only to be really badly let down by it? You know, often happens in just small things. Maybe it's just been a book or a movie or a, or a music album you've been really looking forward to, but when it finally comes out, when you finally get to read it, when you finally get to see it, just a bit of a dud. Sometimes it can be a bit more serious than that. Maybe it's been an investment that you've made, a house that you've bought, a car that you've purchased. just turns out to be a dud. Maybe it's been even more serious than that. Maybe you've been let down by a person. I mean, really let down. Someone you thought was going to make a real difference in your life, someone that you thought would be there for you, someone that you looked up to, but at the end of the day, they just didn't turn out to be the person you'd hoped they'd be. Now, friends, that's exactly what we are to be feeling at the end of our Bible reading this morning. Because, you see, over the past three weeks, our hopes have been raised considerably regarding King Hezekiah of Judah. Because up until now, Hezekiah has been a king of good substance. So remember how back in chapter 36, 37, Hezekiah stuck with God against the might of the Assyrian army. He might have looked a bit shaky for a while there, but in the end, under a lot of pressure, Hezekiah trusted in God's word. And he even offered up that amazing prayer, all about his desire for the honour of God above all else. And then last week, in the middle of a, of a major personal crisis, the guy hung in there with God. Despite personal anguish, he didn't give up on his faith, and God answered him spectacularly. God even linked Hezekiah's restoration to health with Jerusalem's restoration. And, and so it would seem that finally here is a, God, a king whose devotion to God has been linked to the deliverance of God's people. Unlike all the other previous kings, unlike the king before Hezekiah, that dud Ahaz, he was hopeless. But now here seems to be a king finally who is going to lead God's people out of trouble and into safety. In fact, could Hezekiah even be that spectacular king that Isaiah has been talking about in the earlier chapters of the book? Could he actually be the shoot from the stump of Jesse that we heard about way back in chapter 11? You remember him? The king on whom God's spirit will rest, the one who will wear righteousness as his belt and faithfulness as a, as a sash around his waist, the one who will delight in the fear of the... Could that be Hezekiah? Friends, at this stage of the book, we can't help but have high hopes for Hezekiah because at this stage of the book, the guy has hardly put a foot wrong. And then you read chapter 39. And it all comes crashing down. This chapter is almost brutal in its brevity. Three short scenes. Hezekiah and a diplomatic envoy from Babylon. Then there's Hezekiah chatting with Isaiah. And then finally it closes out with Hezekiah making a brief final statement. He is at the centre of every scene. And in every scene he just gets more and more and more disappointing. Deliberately so. But let's track through it and see. Consider for starters that opening scene where he gets a visit from Babylon. Verse 1. At that time, 
Merodach Baladan, son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent Hezekiah letters and a gift because he'd heard of his illness and recovery. Hezekiah received the envoys gladly and showed them what was in his storehouses, the silver, the gold, the spices, the fine oil, his entire armory and everything found among his treasures. There was nothing in his palace or in his kingdom that Hezekiah did not show them. Now, this is obviously a continuation of what we heard about last week, eh? that how Hezekiah became sick, looked like he was in fact going to die, but God wonderfully healed him. Well, now an envoy of well-wishers are here from Babylon to say how pleased they are that Hezekiah is feeling better. Sounds a delightful thing, especially given that Babylon at the time was a bit of an up-and-coming superpower. And so it's a bit of a feather in Hezekiah's cap that they would even care about the fact that he'd been sick. This is a bit like the Queen getting the Governor-General to call in at your place because she'd heard that you'd not been feeling all that well. Whoa, that's pretty special she'd even be aware of it, let alone get someone to call in. And you can't help sense a feeling of uneasiness creeping into the text here. For example, at the end of the previous chapter, Hezekiah boldly declared that because God had healed him, Hezekiah was going to praise God endlessly. Remember that, chapter 20, uh, verse, tw- verse 20 of last week's chapter? The Lord will save me and we will sing with stringed instruments all the days of our lives in the temple of the Lord. And here we are, three verses later, with this envoy from Babylon, and there is no mention of Hezekiah praising God whatsoever. There is no mention of Hezekiah acknowledging that it's God who healed him whatsoever. All he does is show off his stuff. And what is going on here? I mean, Hezekiah has just given another nation, Babylon, far more powerful than his. He has just given them a guided tour of all his defences, all his weapons, all his treasures. The text couldn't be any more clear. He shows them Everything. There was nothing in all his kingdom that Hezekiah did not show them. This is like showing a burglar where all the jewellery and the money is at your place and then letting them know which windows don't open properly and, oh, look, here's the alarm code. That might come in handy. What is going through the guy's head? It's actually, I think, a classic example of how dangerous flattery can be. Think about it. Two chapters earlier... When messengers from the king of Assyria arrived with a massive army to confront Hezekiah and call on him to surrender, then he stood firm. Wouldn't open the gates for them. But now messengers from the king of Babylon arrive with a get well card and a present, pandering his ego, throws open the front doors. Stunningly stupid. Maybe even more ominous than that. Maybe this is willful disobedience. Because it sounds like Hezekiah is trying to impress them so as to ingratiate himself to Babylon. Please don't tell us that Hezekiah is thinking of making an alliance with Babylon. 
Because remember from last week, Isaiah has actually taken us back in time. And so this is all happening before God had delivered Jerusalem from the Assyrian army. At this stage, Assyria is still very much a very big, big threat to Judah. And so could it possibly be that Hezekiah is toying around with the idea of buddying up with Babylon for protection? My goodness, please do not tell us that he's thinking of that. How many times has God told Israel not to do that sort of thing? How many times has he told them to simply trust in him for help? This is exactly the sort of thing that King Ahaz did that got them into trouble in the first place. Ahaz trusted in Assyria and not God. Please don't tell us that Hezekiah is thinking of doing the same thing with Babylon. There is a growing sense of uneasiness creeping into the text. It only gets worse. Enter Isaiah, verse 3. Then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and asked, What are those men saying? Where do they come from? From a distant land, Hezekiah replied. They came to me from Babylon. The prophet asked, What did they see in your palace? They saw everything in my palace, Hezekiah said. There's nothing among my treasures. I did not show them. It's worth noticing a few things in this little exchange. Firstly, it is striking that when faced with the Assyrian threat back in chapter 37, Hezekiah sought out Isaiah and asked him for prayer. Now, in the face of Babylonian flattery, Hezekiah has done what he sees fit and it's Isaiah who has to seek him out. Notice also that Isaiah asks Hezekiah three questions. Hezekiah answers two. The question about what did these men say is just left hanging. Suggesting perhaps that the conversation really was about alliances, the very thing that the king knows that Isaiah would be a cranky about and so he's a little evasive on that particular question. Notice also the emphasis on the envoy coming from distant lands in verse 3. Now, maybe that's simply because he wants to big note in front, himself in front of Isaiah. You know, well, look, these people came from such a long way away to visit me. They travelled all those days travelling to wish me all the best because I'd been sick. Now, that sort of big noting would be disappointing enough. I'm wondering if there's, if there's an even more subtle thing happening here in, the, in, the, in terms of the context of the book. Because at a few spots in Isaiah so far... Isaiah has talked about foreign nations coming to Jerusalem. Back in chapter 2, one of the most glorious visions in the book was of God's plan for all the distant nations to come to Mount Zion, come to Jerusalem, to learn about God, to learn God's ways, to worship God. And so it's a massive letdown that an envoy from a distant land has now, in a sense, come to Jerusalem and it's come in response to a salvation the healing of Hezekiah and yet they don't learn anything about God they don't learn anything about following him they don't learn anything about his laws all they learn is that Hezekiah's got lots of cool stuff this is disappointing then Isaiah said to Hezekiah verse 5 hear the word of the Lord Almighty the day will surely come when everything in your palace and all your father and all that your fathers have stored up unto this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood, will, who will be born to you, will be carried away and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. 
Isaiah sees all too clearly that in the long term, Babylon will turn out to be an enemy rather than a friend. It's history repeating itself with the previous king in Assyria. Went to Assyria to be a friend, turned out to be an enemy. Now uh, Hezekiah has gone to Babylon as a friend. They're going to turn out in the long term to be an enemy. And the royal treasury, which Hezekiah so helpfully showed off to them, it will be carried off as plunder along with surviving members of his family. Now this all happened in history in an event known as the exile or because another disappointing king toyed around with a stupid alliance that God had expressly forbidden. And this king's final words only deepened the sense of disappointment. Verse 8. The word of the Lord you have spoken is good, Hezekiah replied, for he thought there'll be peace and security in my lifetime. They are the final words we hear from the lips of Hezekiah in the book of Isaiah. And like his life in general, they start promisingly, end poorly. The word of the Lord you have spoken is good. That's actually quite a promising thing to say. I mean, is he saying that, the God, that he's learnt his lesson? Is he basically saying, well, I asked for it. God's word of discipline is good, I deserve it. Well, no, doesn't sound like that's what he means at all. For he thought, there will be peace and security in my lifetime. All he's worried about is that God's judgment will be after his lifetime. And so he won't have to worry about it. It's that spoilt, childish, well, at least I'm okay. At least my life's secure. And it is with those selfish, petulant words that this king disappears from the pages of Isaiah. And that is such a disappointing way to go out. Just when we thought we had someone who would deliver. Just when we thought he might have been the one. And yet, ironically, it is exactly by being disappointed with Hezekiah that Isaiah is setting us up to appreciate one of the most extraordinary lessons in the entire book. Because Isaiah deliberately wants us to feel disappointed by Hezekiah so that we might look beyond him to someone else to come who won't disappoint us. And within the context of the book of Isaiah, that someone to come who won't disappoint us is a mysterious servant of the Lord who is going to appear out of the blue in just a couple of chapters' time. And the contrast between Hezekiah and this mysterious servant to come, that contrast could not be more telling. The last thing we hear of Hezekiah's lips is that he's only concerned about himself. But this servant who's about to appear, he's going to be concerned about everyone except himself. In fact, by the time we get to chapter 53 of the book, we will be told that this servant was pierced for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities and the punishment that brought us peace will be upon him. Do you feel the weight of the contrast that Isaiah is setting up? Hezekiah's last words, at least I got peace. The servant to come, he will pour out his life unto death to achieve our peace. 
Now, friends, in our next instalment in Isaiah, we're going to hear a lot more about this servant. For the moment, we're actually going to have a bit of a break from Isaiah. We're going to return to Ephesians for a period of time. Next month, we rejoin Isaiah. And when we do, it's going to be full of the most remarkable things concerning this mysterious servant of God to come. The one who will not disappoint, unlike Hezekiah. Sufficient to say today, you'll never guess who the servant turns out to be. It's Jesus. In fact, everything we'd hoped Hezekiah might be, but who turned out not to be, Jesus arrives and he's the one. In fact, everything we dare hoped for from the entire book of Isaiah, Jesus arrives and he is the one who does not disappoint. He is the Lord's suffering servant who pours out his life until death so as to bring us peace. And he is God's anointed king, the prince of peace, who we heard about in the first half of the book. Everything will converge on Jesus as the one. And in many ways, that word peace that pops up today in verse, in verse 8, that word peace, which Hezekiah was only selfishly interested in for himself, that word peace that Jesus is the prince of, and which he achieves for us as the suffering servant. In many ways, that word peace helps us appreciate the comfort and the repercussions of Jesus being the one. The Hebrew word that lies behind it is the word shalom. Uh, maybe you've heard that on telly, movies. Whenever a Jewish person meets someone to say hello or goodbye, they often say shalom. It's basically saying peace be with you. But if that's how the word is, commonly used nowadays, it it doesn't really do justice to its use in the Bible. In the Bible, shalom is much deeper, much richer, much fuller than, than than a polite greeting. See, you can have peace between you and your next door neighbour by having nothing to do with them. You can have peace by basically erecting a massive sound insulated fence between your house and their house and you can have peace because you just sort of never see them, never interact with them, never hear them. They never come near you, you don't come near them and in a sense that would be peace. Maybe for some of us here that would be a really appealing peace at the moment. It's not shalom. To have shalom between you and your neighbour is to have no fence at all. To have shalom between you and your neighbour is to be at ease and at peace with them. To be so relaxed and at home with your neighbour that you both come and go in each other's homes in total comfort. That you get on so well that you're never an inconvenience to them and they're never an inconvenience to you. You get on so well that you never irritate them and they never irritate you. Shalom is not having peace because you don't have anything to do with them. Shalom is having peace when you have everything to do with them. It's all about security and contentment. It's all about tranquility and friendship. It's all about wholeness and and fullness. Shalom. It's to be content and calm and complete. Shalom. It's what Jesus achieves for us with God. Of having God completely involved in our lives. Every move we make, 
every step we take, every minute of every day, the God of all the universe being with us and he and us totally at ease with each other because sins have been washed away. He's put them behind his back and we have peace. Paul Berenger recently retired from being the Prezi Minister over at uh, Golgong. For a while, Paul was also Minister in Trugia in the western suburbs of Sydney, and that's a place where he said people uh, had to deal with lots of terrible things happening to them in their lives, and many of them had to deal with them having done terrible things in their own lives, having to deal with the guilt and the burdens of those things. Paul reckoned that you could always tell when someone became a Christian, though, Even before they said anything, he reckoned you could tell because they would start to look you in the eye. As if there had been something deep within them that had happened. And that even though they might have had consequences to uh, live out because of things that they'd done, uh, somewhere deep inside them a sense of security and forgiveness and acceptance had come into their lives sometime for the first time. And so they would actually start to look you in the eye. Shalom was what had come into their lives. It's what Hezekiah was content just to have for himself. It's what Jesus wants for us all. He won it at the cross. Have you ever been let down by someone? Like really let down? Hezekiah lets us down today. Jesus will never let you down. Have you ever let yourself down? Ever been disappointed in yourself? Ever had those moments when you thought, I wish, I just wish I hadn't done that. Wish I hadn't said that. Jesus can help with that. He's the Prince of Peace. I'll pray. Father, thank you for your son, our king, your servant, the prince of peace, who gave up his life unto death so that we might have peace too. Father, thank you. Father, thank you for the forgiveness and the intimacy that you bring to us through Jesus' death and resurrection on our behalf. Father, thank you for the genius of your book of Isaiah and the way all the things that you speak of in it find their fulfilment in your precious Son, our King. Amen.